This morning we come back to the letter, epistle of James, where we've been talking about Christian living. What does Christian living look like? And we've, uh, since jumping towards the end of chapter 1, started looking at different aspects of the Christian faith. And this morning, um, we turn to faith again, um, as it is one of the most important components of the Christian life. Um, it's through faith that we receive God's grace of salvation. Uh, scripture declares, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Ephesians 2.8. This verse shows us that our greatest need is salvation, and it's attained through faith. And it seems pretty simple, uh, but sadly, uh, many people make wrong conclusions about this biblical truth. Uh, Some understand faith to mean a simple affirmation of truth and thus conclude that one's lifestyle is not important and it doesn't play a role in faith. Verses like uh, Galatians 2.16 and Romans 3.28 are quoted, which say, um, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Others have understood faith to mean an affirmation of truth plus good works uh, as a way to salvation. Those who believe this will sometimes look to the book of James uh, and um, part of our passage and say, well, James says that Abraham was justified by works. And still others believe that scripture contradicts itself because they understand that Paul and James uh, are at odds with each other. They say, well, Paul says that Abraham was not justified by his works. And James says that Abraham was justified by his works. So it's a contradiction. You can't trust this. And so they reject Christianity. Well, with so much confusion around the understanding of faith and so much writing on it, right, our greatest need is salvation. And so it's very important for us to understand what the Bible actually teaches about faith in the Christian life. And so it's good for us to ask, what does biblical faith look like? And we can even ask, who's right, Paul or James? And, well, the answer is both. We understand that each one is saying, uh, we understand that what each one is saying um, is something that describes a particular part of faith, a different angle, if you would look at it that way. You see, Paul argues that works or good deeds uh, cannot make a person righteous before God for different reasons. Uh, One, it's impossible for us to earn righteous standing before God uh, through our good works because God's standard is perfection, right? And so we, that that would include us obeying God perfectly in mind, in word, in thought, in action, every minute of every um, hour, of every day, of every week, of every year of our life without ever messing up. And none of us has done that, right? We've all messed up. We've all sinned. We, we, we've all fallen short. 
So Paul argues that our good deeds cannot make us righteous, and therefore we've, and we've all sinned, right? We fall short of the glory of God, to name just two reasons. Thus, only true genuine faith in Christ makes one acceptable before God. Now, on the other hand, James argues that works or good deeds are the evidence of genuine faith. And this is produced in all Christians. This kind of faith is evident in one's conduct. And so this morning, we will be looking at this. Now, as a brief update, uh, I know your bulletin says that we will be covering James 2, 14 through 26. But I've split the passage into two parts. So today we will be covering part one, James 2, 14 through 19, which focuses on what a counterfeit, useless faith looks like. And next time, we'll learn what a true and genuine faith looks like. So if you're taking notes, our main point for today is this. Fruitless faith is useless faith. Fruitless faith is useless faith. And our passage gives us three reasons why fruitless faith is useless. First, it cannot save. Fruitless faith cannot save. Second, uh, fruitless faith shows no concern for others. And third, fruitless faith is dead faith. And uh, I'll be going through those as we move along in our sermon this morning. So I want to invite you to open up your Bibles with me and to keep it open as we will be sticking our nose in our Bible throughout our time together. And if you're using one of the Black Pew Bibles in front of you, you can find it on page 1012. And we will be reading James chapter 2, 14 through 19. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now, as we just read in our passage for today, we learn that there is a kind of faith that is not genuine. It's a counterfeit, an anti-biblical kind of faith. And earlier in the letter, we learned that James was writing to Jewish Christians who were scattered uh, outside of their homeland due to persecution. And before, coming, uh, before becoming Christians, these believers lived their lives focusing on the works of the law. But now that they had come to know Christ and placed their faith in him, it appears that these Jewish believers were beginning to swing, swing to the opposite side of the pendulum as they began to believe that faith was only a profession of uh, belief in truths, but that is it. James writes to to confront this error by explaining what kind of faith it is that is genuine faith and what kind of faith is wrong and useless. 
And so our first point is fruitless faith is useless because it cannot save. This is the first description of a useless faith. And we see that in verse 14, which says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? James begins by giving the first reason as to why fruitless faith is useless. He says right off the bat, because it cannot save. As we just read in verse 14, James asks his first question. And he paints a picture of someone who may sincerely claim to have a a genuine faith, but does not have any evidence in his life that proves that his faith is legit. So James answers this question by asking another question. He says, can this faith save him? And the answer is no. In asking and answering these questions, James teaches that any profession of faith that does not result in a transformed lifestyle, that is to say, uh, it does not make itself evident by good works as part of one's life, well, this kind of faith is no good. Or to put it another way, it wouldn't make sense to claim to have been saved but not uh, been changed. The reason for this is that true faith is saving faith. Faith in Christ leads one to being born again. And that includes being given a new heart with new desires. Desires to love God and to love one's neighbor. This kind of faith produces ongoing change in believers. It's a change that's continual and increasing throughout the lives uh, of all believers in this world. There will be times in one's life where you see a lot of good works in your life and other times you see less. But the overall trajectory of this evidence is an increase in good works as you get older or uh, walk in the faith longer and longer. On the other hand, a fruitless faith can lead one to go through external works. For example, attending church, becoming a church member, participating in baptism and the Lord's Supper, but have no internal change. Those who possess genuine faith are those who Paul describes as children of the light and of the day who who don't belong to the darkness or night, as he writes to the Thessalonians. Now, an example that I once read compares this to walking into a dark room and flipping the light switch on. As soon as you do that, you would expect there to be light. But if there was no light, you would conclude that there's something wrong. However, if there is light, then the darkness is overcome. Similarly, when a dark heart places its faith in Jesus, the light of the world, it is illuminated and thus produces a change of heart with new desires, with new priorities. And so there are two important things to note in this section. One, James doesn't say, what good is it to claim to have faith if you still sin? He's not saying that. James doesn't say that a profession of faith leads one to being perfect. 
What he is saying, though, is that saving faith will reveal itself in a Christian's life in one's actions, which are seen as good deeds. This is what I refer to as uh, fruitful faith. A faith that produces good fruit is a fruitful faith because it manifests what's in the heart. But a faith that is fruitless is useless. Second, James also tells us that uh, James is not telling us that salvation requires faith plus works. You do not want to conclude that from this passage. He's not arguing that faith gets you into the kingdom and that somehow um, along the way, at some time, you have to do works to continue keeping yourself in the kingdom. That's not what James is saying. This would mean that you can earn salvation by your good works, which is not what the Bible teaches, and it would make Christ's work for us purposeless. James is saying that good fruit naturally accompanies those who have been born again, serving as the evidence of salvation. Now, I want to draw my attention to new believers. For those of you that are new believers, I want to take some time to help you think through your understanding of the evidences of faith in your life. Because sometimes believers can experience um, uh, fear of not being saved because of the things that are seen or not seen in their life. Right? They lack assurance. As a child of God, you have been and will continue to experience many wonderful things in your life if you're a new believer. You will notice an increased desire to obey God. Where you once used to joyfully disobey Him, you will now want to turn away from those things and you will want to um, obey God. You'll also find a growing distaste for sin uh, and an increased love for obedience. And as you experience these things, the right response is to praise God for His work in your life because of what He's doing in it. Uh, he's doing what He promised to do with all of His children to transform us from the inside out. But I do want to warn you that as you continue to grow in your relationship with God, don't take your eyes off of Christ. And what I mean by this is remember that the only reason that you've been saved is because of Christ's work on your behalf. It's never because of the works that you have done or are doing. Your works, good or bad, will not take away from your salvation. It will not make you lose your salvation because it was never based on good works to begin with. When you find yourself falling short, either by disobeying or by not doing something that you should have done, be encouraged that the Lord promises that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and He is just to forgive us of all unrighteousness and to purify us. Trust that He will finish the good work that He started in you because salvation is a gift that comes from Him. So the first thing that we learn is that fruitless faith cannot save because it does not entrust one's life to God's gift of grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. The second point that James gives us is that fruitless faith is useless because it shows no concern for others. And we see this in verses 15 and 16. It shows no concern for others. The second reason that fruitless faith um, 
is useless is, yes, it shows no concern. And James illustrates this by providing a real case scenario. The example is of a Christian who presumably is able to care for others, who then comes across another Christian, a brother or a sister, who is in real need and has real necessities, basic necessities. James writes in uh, 15 and 16, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Another way to, 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 to say that is, suppose you walk into the church and you see someone who, or you, in conversation, you become aware of someone who, a brother or a sister in the church who has lost their job due to the pandemic, or maybe has been having a, a hard time finding work, possibly struggling to buy food, to clothe themselves or their family, maybe in need of paying for rent. If you having the ability to, to help them and care for your brother and your sister, you say, hey, see you next week. God bless you. What do you, what do you think about that? What good does that do? Is that how Christians ought to treat other believers? If the lack of concern is due to negligence, simply not having read or studied what God's word says about this, the Lord has graciously instructed us in how saving faith reveals itself. Proverbs 3.27 says, Do not withhold good from those to whom is due when it is in your power to act. Now, if your lack of concern is, an, is intentional and malicious, then it's helpful to know that Scripture also condemns the heart attitude of selfishness. In the Lord's kindness, he warns us of the danger of a fruitless faith that walks down this path. Uh, another proverb, 21.13 says, Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. So the scripture also has a lot to say about how Christians ought to treat each other. These are known as the one another's of the, of the scriptures, and here's a few. Scripture calls believers to love one another, to serve one another, to be devoted to one another in love, to regard one another as more important than yourselves, and to be hospitable to one another. Why? Well, Christians are those who have been saved out of the world and in local churches with other believers. This includes being given the privilege of having God as Father and gaining many brothers and sisters in Christ. Therefore, our new identity and position in Christ would lead us, should lead us to respond appropriately to the needs of anyone in our church as we become aware of them. However, James gives this example to show that a profession of faith that does not show concern for other believers is a useless faith. He describes this kind of faith as one that leads one to respond, but only with Christianese, you know, a few religious words, but isn't moved to action. Um, it's not moved to provide for the good of our brother or sister who need. Maybe the person in the hypothetical example has wrongly concluded that Jesus 
has said to not be anxious about anything because God knows our needs, right? He calls us to seek his kingdom first and God will provide for our needs. But this would be a wrong conclusion as saving faith leads believers to obey Jesus, to obey Jesus' commands as he calls us to give to those who beg from you refuse the one who would borrow from you, according to Matthew. So brothers and sisters, the scripture is clear. Using Christian words simply to bless others without being moved to action, to help in time of need, is of no good. It doesn't serve anyone in need, and it doesn't befit a child of God. Saving faith moves one to be concerned about the needs of others, and it moves us towards them in love by providing for their needs as we are able and in sacrifice. This is because saving faith follows the Lord's example who has done the very same thing for us by coming into the world to seek and to save us who were lost. Now, the scripture provides examples of saving faith at work in the lives of God's people as they were moved to care for one another. For example, in Acts 6, we find an example of how the Jerusalem church gave itself to caring for the needs of uh, the neediest of all, the widows. In Acts 9, we read of a disciple named Tabitha who was full of good works and acts of charity. Later, the apostle Paul called Timothy to teach the Ephesian church to care for the needs of the widows. And the Apostle Paul, John, sorry, put it this way. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So Christians, both employed and non-employed, The Lord has blessed us much in many ways. For some, he's blessed us with our jobs as a means of providing for our needs, but also so that we would be a blessing to others in their time of need. Now, for those who maybe aren't working or are students or are looking for a job, the Lord has also blessed you much in providing for your needs, in giving you health, in providing for meals, I want to encourage us all to be striving to be men and women, brothers and sisters who are characterized as a concerned people, concerned for the people of God in our local church and outside of it, that we would be known for being eager to do good works and ready to love one another as Jesus has loved us. Now, this may look different for each one of us, Um, because some of us may be single, others are married, others are married with children. So it may look different. But it may look like giving direct financial help to others as you become aware of a need. You can plan for this in advance by adding a line to your budget to help you prepare for times of need. And when you become aware of a need, you can just withdraw from there and have that financial help ready. It may look like sacrificing a little and maybe not ordering your venti, brown sugar, oat milk, shake, and espresso a few times a month and instead putting that money aside to help those who are in need. It may also look like 
giving up some of your possessions by selling them to help meet the needs of others. Either giving of your clothing or selling your stuff on offer up and using that money to provide for the needs of those who need it in the church. It may even involve you giving your lunch, the lunch that you just bought um, to someone who is in need and using the opportunity to encourage or to share the gospel. Whatever the case may be, it ought to be done out of a desire to love God and to love our neighbor because we want to please and imitate our Savior. May God's Spirit work in us the desire to increase in our love for one another with brotherly affection, outdoing one another in showing honor. So the second thing that we learn is that fruitless faith is useless faith because it's not concerned with the needs of others. Rather than moving towards others with a desire to love as Christ has done for his people, it retreats and it seeks its self-interest. The third reason that fruitless faith is useless is because it lacks life. Or as James put it, uh, he puts it, he says that it's dead faith. Verses 17 through 19. Here we read, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Here James tells us that a claim to, to faith that only affirms biblical truth, faith that has nothing to rely on for evidence of life. One of the responsibilities that I have as a hospice chaplain is that I visit my patients um, at end of life. And sometimes uh, that means visiting them literally at end of life. Uh, I've had some experiences where I've been present um, as someone has given their final breath. Uh, and other times when I've, I've arrived right after. Sometimes in, uh, it's been during the daytime uh, when I first started. Uh, sometimes it was at 2 in the morning. Sometimes it was at 4 in the morning. Um, and in, in all of these situations, I've witnessed a corpse laying in bed, covered in clothes, sometimes wearing jewelry. But if the body wasn't breathing, if the body was unresponsive, without a pulse, it meant that there was no evidence of life. And thus the body was pronounced dead. Well, that is what a faith without works is like. In verse 18 through 19, James continues saying, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. James presents another hypothetical situation where he anticipates that someone may object to what James has been saying. James says, and then in verse 19, You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. All along, James has been making the same point, saying, Saving faith shows itself to be alive in actions, in the actions of those who possess saving faith. It reveals itself in the fruits of a transformed heart and actions that follow. But in contrast, a faith that is only professed without any evidence is dead. Then James adds to his explanation by comparing 
this kind of faith to the, the faith that demons possess or fallen angels. James commends people who agree with biblical truth. The fact that the Lord is one or that there is only one God is something that the Bible teaches and we ought to believe that. He says that it's a good thing because it would be bad to reject the truth of God. However, he continues saying that saving faith is more than just acknowledgement of truth because even demons agree with biblical truths about God. We see this in the, in the Bible where Jesus, on different occasions, he would encounter people that were possessed by demons. They would respect Jesus because they knew who he, who he is. And although they recognized Jesus as the Son of God, the faith that, or the belief in truth that the demons possess was not saving faith. Because it only led them to fear and to tremble. Because they knew that he had come to seek and to save. And they knew that uh, at some point he would judge them. And that they would be um, destroyed. So James shows us that a mere acknowledgement of truth is not saving faith. Saving faith takes it a step further by accepting Christ for forgiveness and salvation. And this is what leads to a transformed life. Now, if you're visiting us today and you are exploring Christianity or you know that you're not a Christian... We're glad that you can join us today. It's, it's an honor for, for us to have you with us. Now, I want to ask you a self-reflection question. You don't need to answer aloud, but you can answer to yourself. Do you consider your faith to be a living faith? That is, is, it one that, is your faith one that is acceptable to God? Is your faith simply a mere recognition of God's existence? Is it in doing good things, or is it the faith, the tradition that your family passed on to you? If your answer is in any of these, or anyone who is not Jesus Christ or his sacrifice for you, the Bible says that such faith is not living nor saving. And the faith that leads to salvation is one that understands God rightly and believes in Him. The result of this is a turning away from your sin, which the Bible calls repentance, and a turning to God in obedience to His commands. This is a lifestyle that is in, uh, that you by the power of God to live your life as a living sacrifice. It's a life that leads you to repent. Uh, of rebelling against him and to trust in his provision for salvation through his son Jesus. If you have any questions about this, please feel free to ask me or David or anyone here and we'd be happy to tell you more about this. Well, the last thing that we learn is that fruitless faith is useless faith because it's dead faith. The response to dead faith is not to go and to do good things like giving to charity or giving your time to certain organizations. What is needed is a different kind of faith. It's a living faith that transforms our life. It's a biblical faith. In conclusion, wondering, what do I do? I don't have the desire 
to obey God or to follow the one another's. I believe in Christ, but I just don't know how to get myself to, to, to obey God. Well, the cure is the gospel. It's a turning from sin and clinging to God's grace to trust in Christ. If you find yourself cold or lacking desire, turn to the gospel. Meditate on it long and hard until your heart becomes warmed with the precious truths of who God is and the great gift that he's given to us in his son Jesus. If you don't know the gospel, then that's a good place where you can start by learning what the gospel is. David or myself would be more than happy to share it with you or to give you a free resource called What is the Gospel? But learning the gospel, memorizing the gospel, knowing the gospel is crucial to Christian living because it's not just what gets us into the kingdom of God, but it's what gets us all the way home. It's a right understanding of Jesus and his work that leads us to new love and obedience to God, and with it comes delight and joy. So to sum up, fruitless faith is useless faith because it cannot save. It shows no concern for others and is dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you because you are a living God. And as a living God, you delight in giving life to those who are dead in their sins, in need of faith, saving faith. We praise you for the gift of faith that you give freely to whom you please. We pray, Lord, that you would nurture our faith, that our faith would be alive, that our faith would be uh, one that demonstrates itself by good deeds and good works, not because we're trying to earn your salvation, but because we want to obey you because we love you because of who you are and what you've done for us because your word is good for us, and in obeying you, we find life. We pray, Father, that you would uh, help us, Lord, to be a people who uh, cares for one another, and that we would be ready to nourish one another's faith, all for our good and for your glory. We ask that you would seal this word in our hearts, and that you would enable us to obey you and to turn wherever we need to turn, and that we would trust in Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.